Friends, I do invite you to stand as you're able to hear God's word read and and then we will hear it preached as well. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribe stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Dear Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. May these words meet us as more than powerful literature or a story that is compelling. But Lord, may they actually touch our conscience and may these words penetrate uh, deeper than, uh, than the hearts of Pilate or Herod permitted. And may we look by faith to the Son of God. We pray this in his name. Amen.
There comes the time in every trial when the jury must render its verdict. And usually it comes in, in a form like this, a form of a question asked by the judge. Jury, how do you find the accused? Guilty or not guilty? Usually it comes in that very language. How do you find this man? How do you find this one who has been accused under the court of law? What verdict will you render? And I have to say, that's what we're seeing put before us today. You'll notice that Jesus, who has been put under arrest for charges we know are false, is being whisked away, uh, almost like a parade, from one set of sinners to another. From the Sanhedrin to Pilate, from Pilate to Herod, from Herod to Pilate, from Pilate to the people. And as Jesus is moved, you know, you can feel it, right? There's an urgency in this. Things are speeding up. And as Jesus is being moved here and there and here and there, he's not just being paraded before rulers and kings and crowds. He's also being paraded before us. I think that's the kind of urgency that Luke has as he writes to us. He's writing to a man named Theophilus. He told us that at the very beginning of his gospel. And there's not a whole lot we know about Theophilus, but we know that Theophilus was a ruler of the people of sorts, some, some sort of a ruler. And so as he sees Jesus paraded before rulers, like Pilate and Herod, what verdict will Theophilus come to? How will he find this man, Jesus? And the same question comes before you today. How will you find this man? What are you going to do with Jesus? I'm going to break from my normal practice of giving you several points that we follow. And instead, I just want to follow the course of this trial. I want it to come to life for us as we, we follow Jesus from place to place in these 25 verses. So pay careful attention as we see Jesus whisked to and fro. And the question put before you, how do you find this man? Guilty or not guilty? Well, first we see Jesus before Pilate. And in fact, you know, he's taken there by the Sanhedrin, by the 70 Jewish uh, uh, rulers or men who uh, stood up as one group, as one man as it was, determined to put Jesus to death. But here's their problem. They can't do that. They don't have the power to execute Jesus because they are under the authority of a Roman government, of Caesar himself. And so if they want to put a man to death, they have to appeal to Rome. And that's exactly what they do. They go before Pontius Pilate. He is the prefect of Rome in Jerusalem, and he's the only man in Judea with the power to put someone on death row. He's the only man who can do what they want him to do. And you start to feel the pressure heat up for Pilate in that respect, don't you? It's about six o'clock in the morning, and Pilate hears, you know, a knock on his door. And here they are, the Jewish council, They've come and they have Jesus with them. 
and they usher Jesus into Pilate's chamber. In fact, you know, archaeologists have found the very um, stones, the very room in which Jesus was brought before Pilate. And standing there, they lay before Pontius Pilate three charges. First, Jesus is misleading the people. Second, he's forbidding the Jews to pay taxes to Caesar. And third, he's claiming to be a king. In short, they, claim, they, they charge him with insurrection and rebellion. And if you think about this, which of these charges really holds? Well, the first two are complete fabrications, right? Especially the one about paying taxes to Caesar. You, you can hear, I mean, it, it should almost make you angry when you hear them bring that up because it's the exact opposite of what Jesus actually taught. He, he taught that there is a sense in which we are to give to see, to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they're taking his words and they're twisting it. And in fact, you, you remember what, were the, what was the charge that was brought against Jesus last week when we heard him brought before the Sanhedrin? Blasphemy. They said he claims to be the son of God. But here they bring three new charges because they know Pontius Pilate isn't going to care if, if Jesus has committed blasphemy. He's a Roman. He's a pagan. He doesn't care if someone is, is claiming to be God. But he's going to take special interest of someone who's you know, fomenting a rebellion. Someone who's posing a threat to Caesar and claiming to be king. And so already you can sense the injustice that is done against the Savior as they drag him before Pilate with false charges. Pilate focuses in on that third charge. So, Jesus, do you claim to be the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, familiar words, you have said so. What is Jesus saying there? It almost sounds like, hey, those are your words, Pilate. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Don't, don't make me guilty of that. But actually what Jesus is saying, as we studied those words last week, is he is saying, yes, there is a very, very real sense in which that is true. I affirm. But notice, Pilate, that came from your mouth. He's putting the pressure back on Pilate. He's putting the pressure back on his accusers. And so Pilate has a tough situation on his hands. The, the Jewish people pressing in on him, the possibility of, of, of Jesus being someone dangerous. And, and what, as we look at Pilate, there's two things that we need to realize. And first is this. We're going to see this with both Pilate and Herod. Herod, they represent the main kind of ways that an unbelieving world responds to Jesus when he's put in front of them. When the unbelieving world sees Jesus and they're asked, how do you find this man? The ways that Pilate and Herod respond are, they, they epitomize ways that we see people respond to Jesus today. How does Pilate respond to Jesus? Well, the first way is he responds with annoyance and frustration that Jesus has, has, has been brought before him. In a very real way, we look at everything that Pontius Pilate does in all of the Gospels. And one thing that really stands out about him is he, he is trying to find the fastest way possible to get Jesus out of his hands, right? Jesus and the problem that he presents to Pilate is like a grenade that's been, lot, been 
you know, thrown into his chamber. And now Pilate has to deal with it because he on the one hand, he has to play the political game with the Jewish leaders and not incite a rebellion from them. But on the other hand, he really has to render a verdict regarding Jesus. And Jesus has very few words to say to him. Three words, you have, or four words, you have said so. That's all that Jesus gives Pilate. Pilate wishes that the Jesus question would just go away so he can move on with his life. And isn't that probably the main way that we see people respond to Jesus today? Maybe that's the way that you respond to Jesus as he's brought before you this morning. You know, this deep sense of frustration. Why? Why do I have to deal with this? Why do I have to render a verdict regarding Jesus? Why do I have to speak to whether a man should be declared innocent or guilty or crucified or not crucified? What does this have to do with me? Let me get on with my life. You'll find that with people as as you talk to them about Jesus, you'll see the same kind of response with Pilate. Just look, I... Someone else can deal with this. And yet at the same time, Pilate cannot shake this deep sense of from the, the, from the very little justice that he does hold to. He understands that Jesus is not guilty of these charges. It's crystal clear. He, he only has to spend a little bit of time talking to Jesus when he realizes this is a sham. And he says... I do not find this man guilty of what he's been charged with. Now, right away, the the pressure heats up on Pilate because these men who who come as a Jewish council to accuse Jesus, they will not take this answer. They press forward. But but he's, he's been inciting all kinds of rebellion, misleading the people all the way from Galilee. And when Pilate hears of Galilee, he realizes, aha, here's my way out. Herod is in charge of the district of Galilee. He's in charge of that region. And and he happens to be in town to make sure that nothing uh, bad happens during Passover. And so what does Pilate do? He does exactly what we'd expect him to do as a man who just wants to get the Jesus question out of his hands. He sends him over to Herod. And so we see Jesus whisked from Pilate to Herod. And Herod asks the question, how do you find this man? How do you find this Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Verse 11. Now, Herod is glad that Pilate has sent Jesus his way, right? He's fascinated by Jesus. And he's fascinated because he wants to see some sort of a sign. He wants to see Jesus do some sort of a miracle. He's been hearing about all the things that Jesus has done And finally, he gets his chance to have Jesus before him. He's hoping that Jesus will put on a show. Do some fancy miracle. Some hocus pocus to capture his attention. It's similar to what Herod did with John the Baptist. You remember he chained up John the Baptist and had him as his courts as a kind of court preacher. Just to tickle his ears entertain him with religious sounding words and impressive prophecies. Here we see another picture of how people respond to Jesus with fascination, but not faith. 
Perhaps you've met people like Herod. Perhaps you sit here this morning as, as Herod. You come to church and you hear words that tickle your ears and that intrigue you with religious sounding questions. Jesus intrigues you. You're fascinated by who he could be or what he could do for you, how he could serve your interests. And yet, only a few minutes before Jesus, and, and you realize as you, as you hear him speak to you in his word, that when it comes to the questions that you would ask him, he is silent. He is silent. He does not play your games. He does not serve your interest. He is a sovereign king. And so what happens as soon as Herod sees that Jesus isn't going to serve him? He mocks our Savior. It's painful to watch. As he beats him, as he leads in mockery, as he dresses him up like a king in robes and kicks him around and beats him. This is the great danger of being in Herod's position. If you come to church fascinated with what Christ can do for you, rather than bowing before his sovereign majesty and saying, Jesus, I come to serve you. If you come demanding the king to put on a show for you, you will, in the next moment, lead in mockery of Jesus. You are in great danger of a conscience that is cold towards the king. And so Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate unamused. But but notice this. This is really important. For all of Herod's frustration with Jesus, you know, he's angry that Jesus didn't put on a show, but he has to admit he's not guilty of what they're charging him with. He is innocent of charges. And so Jesus comes back to Pilate mocked, beaten, rejected, but declared not guilty. How does Herod find this man not guilty? And notice that this is incredible over and over and over again. Six times in this passage, we hear that verdict declared not guilty, leading all the way up to verse 13. An important passage, an important part of our passage. In which Pilate Pilate has Jesus back in his possession. The Jesus problem is back on his shoulders. And then he calls together the chief priests and rulers and people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. How many times can Pilate say it over and over and over again? The verdict is rendered not Guilty, So much so that Herod and Pilate, two guys that have a long history in, uh, of bickering and can't, you know, they can barely find any common agreement with one another. Here's something they can agree on. That this guy that they don't like, he's not guilty. He's innocent. And so we come to the final moments the third Roman trial, when Jesus stands before the crowd and Pilate for the final verdict to be rendered. And here's what's so crazy about this. That there shouldn't even be this trial, this third and final trial. 
It should have stopped with number one when Pilate said, look, I heard what you accused him of. He's not guilty. But Pilate in his cowardice and his desire to, to take the path of least resistance when it comes to Jesus, he's dragged this out to a third and final trial when now he's really at the whims of the people. And he stands before the crowd with hatred in their eyes and he says, look, he's innocent. And yet the people cry out, away with this man, away with him and release Barabbas. And Luke tells us who Barabbas is. He says he's a man who'd committed Treason, great treason in the city of Jerusalem. He'd led an uprising. And then on top of that, in the process of that uprising, he'd even committed murder. Now think about this. Think about how much hatred must be in the hearts of these people. Because they've accused Jesus of insurrection, but they're at the point, the boiling point, where now they're rising up against Pilate. They're about to commit the same charge that they accused Jesus of, of insurrection. And they call for the release of Barabbas. A man who is accused of the very things that they're accusing Jesus of, of insurrection, of being a traitor. Even worse, he's a murderer. And yet they, they plea with Pilate to release this man rather than Jesus. You see, none of this was ever really about true justice. None of this was ever about releasing or none of this was ever about putting Jesus before the weight of the law. It was about getting rid of him. It's ultimately where the world responds to Jesus. How do you find this man? They say, well, guilty or not, I want him out of the picture. Guilty or not, I do not want Jesus in my life. Crucify him. Crucify him. Get him out of my life. Get him out of the picture. What would you say as you heard the crowd standing up and shouting this around you, shouting, crucify him, crucify him? When you hear that read in the text, it's almost as if someone next to you is standing up and yelling. And, you know, in one sense, you want to say, sit down, stop that, quiet. He's not guilty. Didn't you hear the verdict rendered? And then you watch in horror as Pilate bends under their pressure. He pleads with them, but ultimately he breaks. And he says, away with this man. Take him out of my hands. Go ahead and do what you want with him. Can you believe that? The verdict is not guilty. Imagine you hear that declared in a, court, in, in a courtroom. You're watching you know, a trial, a high case trial on television. You hear the judge say, the jury has rendered the verdict not guilty. He says, and here's the sentence. Death. Execution. You say, that's not fair. That's not right. You can't crucify an innocent man. You can't take him to the cross. He's not guilty. This isn't just. This isn't right. 
Don't crucify him. And yet, even as those words come out, we have to realize the predicament that we're in. If we insist that Jesus isn't going to be crucified, then what hope is there for sinners like us? Sinners like us who need the innocent to take our place. See, we have in this passage that beautiful picture. This is the light at the end of the tunnel. This is uh, the, the, the hope of goodness and a plan of God in the midst of all this horrible injustice. It's the picture of the gospel in Barabbas. Imagine, picture with me, Barabbas being in prison and he hears people crying, crucify him, crucify him. And he doesn't see what's going on. He thinks, well, this is it for me. I've been waiting on death row. This is it. I'm going to be crucified. And then in comes a soldier and he releases his chains and he says, all right, you're free. And Barabbas says, what? What what do you mean? He says, The man named Jesus is going to die in your place. You realize, friends, that we are Barabbas. We are the guilty. You are the guilty. You are sitting on death row, bound in prison by your your very nature to sin and sin and sin and to reject God and to reject his king. And there you are, guilty before God of mass rebellion. And yet, here comes Jesus, the spotless Holy One, the righteous Son of God, who comes and takes your place and stands condemned. The innocent who is treated as the guilty one, the righteous who dies for the unrighteous. And there he is, stepping in your place, condemned in your place. So that you can go free into the light, saying, why do I get to go free? Why me? I'm the murderer. I'm the rebel. And the soldier says to you, because a man named Jesus took your place. See, this is the plan of God in all this. Just as Satan is having Jesus nailed to the cross, God in his sovereign goodness, in in his perfect plan, is sending his son to the cross so that Barabbas, whose name is son of the father, can walk free. How do you find this man? How do you find this Jesus? You know, as this text closes, there's two things that we have to find about Jesus. One is we have to find that he is innocent. Said over and over again, you say, he's not guilty. He doesn't deserve this. What are you going to do with this man? Even as everything in us says, don't crucify Jesus. We have to say, yes, Father, send him to the cross, not because I deserve it, not because he deserves it, but because I need a savior. I need someone to stand in my place so that Barabbas can go free.
so that I can be the son of the father set free by the son of God who died in my place. How do we find this savior? What are you going to do with Jesus? Are you going to say away with this man like Pilate? Are you going to play games with him like Herod did? Or are you going to receive him as the savior? You must do that. There is no hope for you without that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the trials of Jesus are painful to watch. As the Son of God, the one who is the King, not only of the Jews, but of all creation, is humiliated and paraded before sinners who scoff and mock and who don't treat him with the seriousness he deserves. And yet, Lord, you were speaking through those sinful men, declaring both that he is innocent and yet that it was your will that he would suffer. How can this be? How can your mercy be that great? We do not know, but Lord, help us to receive Jesus, to find him innocent and to find him our savior. We pray this in his name, amen.